topic today is dealing with divisions. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 to 17. Uh, let me lead us in prayer and then we will look at God's word together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your grace you have called us to be your holy people. Help me now to preach your gospel with faithfulness and clarity and we pray that it would transform our hearts that we would view the church the way you do, and that we would be truly united in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, how do you deal with problems in a church? How do you deal with problems in a church? Now, anyone who's attended church for long enough will know that problems abound in churches. The problem with churches, of course, is that churches are made up of people and people are sinful. Now, I've been in full-time ministry for 12 years, I think it is now. And uh, one of the things you notice as a pastor over the years is church politics. You know, different factions striving for position and influence, wanting things done their way because their way is the best way. Each faction led by certain people seeking to rise up the ranks and uh, promote themselves and their circle and increase their influence. And of course that means that churches are so often places of politics where people say hurtful things and make false accusations and cut off people that they don't like. And sometimes it can be very extreme. Uh, in a previous church that I was a part of, a congregation member actually filed lawsuits against one of the pastors they didn't like. Now it's not just politics and conflicts, but there's, there's uh, problems of personal nature as well. Pride, greed, sexual sins. Lust, pornography, immorality. There's idolatry as people claim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but then continue to worship other gods as well, bowing down to their ancestors, going to the temple and so on. And then there's all kinds of theological problems as well. Uh, Sidelining the cross, distorting the scriptures, denying the resurrection, pre preaching victory and blessing instead of suffering and service. Every church has problems. Moral problems, worship problems, spiritual problems, relational problems, theological problems. And some of us may be so affected by those problems right now as we listen that we're even considering leaving our church. So how do you deal with problems in a church? Well, today, as I mentioned, we're beginning this new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we'll see as we explore this book that Corinth was a church that was Full of problems. In fact, all of the problems that I just mentioned were problems in Corinth. There were divisions, each faction boasting about themselves. There were conflicts, even lawsuits about, uh, between members. There was gross sexual immorality of which the church boasted. There, there was compromise as people worshipped Jesus and then went to idol temples. Uh, the rich humiliated the poor in the Lord's Supper. And there were those with gifts who proudly looked down on the gifts of other people. They were confused on their theology too. They were confused about marriage and singleness and the relationship between men and women and spiritual gifts. And uh, some people in this church were even denying the resurrection of the dead, the very foundation of the Christian faith. And we shouldn't be surprised that, that Corinth is that way. I mean, to be called a Corinthian in the first century, it was actually a swear word. Uh, Corinth was a city that was notorious for immorality and idolatry. Uh, it was also a place 
uh, famous for professional orators who got their living by impressive speaking, exalting themselves over other people. It was a place obsessed with eloquence, and it was no surprise that all these issues found their way into the church. But I wonder if you were Paul writing this letter to this troubled church, how would you approach it? Uh, would you just dive in and scold them? You know, what are you doing, you numbskulls? I mean, that's how an Australian would put it, you know. Uh, Stop this nonsense, you idiots. You're so messed up. I'm not even sure you're a Christian. Get your act together or I'll ditch you and go off to some other church. And Paul could have done that, but he doesn't do that at all, does he? Because actually Paul loves this broken church. He planted this broken church. He wants to see it restored. So what's Paul's solution to the problems at Corinth? Well, I think you see it as we look at the structure of uh, Paul's letter. Uh, you can see it in that, uh, that box on the screen. Uh, and uh, down the, 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 the first couple of columns, you can see all the, the issues in the church, right? The vision issues, moral issues, worship issues, spiritual issues regarding wisdom, sexuality, idolatry, gifts, resurrection, so on. But what I want you to notice is how the book begins and ends. Notice the book starts in chapters 1 and 2 with an extended theology of the cross. And the book ends in chapter 15 with an extended theology of the resurrection in other words, the, the gospel, the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is what brackets the letter. Because in the end, Paul knows that every problem in the church, it results from a fun, more fundamental failure to understand and live out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, whatever problems the church faces, whether conflicts or moral failures or spiritual pride, the solution is always the gospel. It is always coming back to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's as we allow the gospel to return to its central place and allow it to shape our minds and our lives, then there is hope for change in any troubled church. There is hope for any troubled Christian. And so let's dive in and we'll see how Paul, even right up here up front, encourages us to look again at Jesus and think again about the gospel as we address these issues. Or point one, focus on Christ. We've been made holy. Focus on Christ. We've been made holy. Now in the initial verses, Paul identifies himself as the sender of the letter. Verse one, Paul called to, by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Paul wants to remind them from the outset who he is. He is an apostle, someone specially chosen by Jesus to represent Jesus with all the authority of Jesus. This letter, then, is not just Paul's personal opinions. It's the word of God. And we also mention Sosthenes here. He is actually a Corinthian himself. Uh, he's named as the synagogue ruler in Acts chapter 18. They met in his house. Uh, he may be Paul's scribe, or perhaps Paul just hopes that if they're going to ignore Paul, then they're going to listen to their brother Sosthenes, whom they respect. Well, after the sender comes the salutation in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, I guess we'll, we could easily miss how remarkable those words actually are. 
But when you see a church that has so many problems as the Corinthian church do, did, it's not hard to start wondering whether they're actually Christians at all, whether they are a church at all. But Paul says the church of God in Corinth, Paul affirms this church with all of its problems, it still belongs to God, it's still his church, in fact it is his holy church, look how he adds in verse 2, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Sanctified, it means to be made holy. A saint, it's a holy one. What a remarkable description of this sin-laden church. Holy, saints, the church of God. I wonder what you see as you look around the church with all of its problems. Do you see sinners, troublemakers, difficult people, problems? You should see saints, holy people, loved by God, set apart by God to serve God, the church of God. And not because they're wonderful or because they're moral or because they're angelic in some way. No, but because they're in Christ. They've been forgiven. Uh, the great uh, reformer Martin Luther captured it in this great Reformation slogan. Let me try its Latin. Simul justice et peccator. I say that a few times, it'll make you feel smarter, I guess. It means, at the same time, sinners and saints. Sinners in and of ourselves, but in Christ, saints, holy ones. What a liberating thought that is. Despite all of our problems, our imperfections, we can be saints, the holy people of God. Now notice here Paul thinks all Christians are saints. He doesn't think it's just special people like, like Mary or Paul or the apostles. Uh, Paul reminds us in verse 2, we're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. We're reminded there's not special classes of Christians, you know, saints and then all the rest. In Christ, we all have equal standing, equal status whether we're apostles or just the average Christian. There's no classes. It's not about who, what we've done that matters. It's about what God has done for us. And if our faith is in Christ, he's called us, he's brought us under Christ's rule, he's washed us clean by the blood of Christ, we are all saints. We are all his holy forgiven people. And it's summarized beautifully in the greeting Paul gives in verse 3. Grace to you. Peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a transformation of the standard Roman and Jewish greetings to a, a wonderful statement of gospel truth. We're saved by the grace of God, and it brings peace with God. So at the heart of our identity as God's people is Christ he is the one who sanctifies us, who makes us holy, who, who makes us his church, who binds us together. See, the solution to our problems is always to remember our, our identity in him, to focus on him. That brings us to the second point today. Focus on Christ. We've received everything by grace. Focus on Christ. We've received everything by grace. I, I guess we might expect Paul to skip the formalities at this point and get straight into rebuking the church for its sins, maybe like he does in the book of Galatians. 
I think I'd be tempted to do that if I was writing this letter. But it's so interesting that he doesn't do that. In fact, he does the opposite of that. Uh, he begins not by scolding them, but by expressing his thanksgiving for them. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful gospel perspective Paul has. Paul's not being insincere here. You know, you're throwing in a few positive uh, comments so that they will listen to his feedback later on. Now, Paul is genuinely thankful. He thanks God always for them, continually, because God is at work in their lives. God's grace has been given to them. And there are three ways that he sees God's grace bearing fruit in their lives in verses 5 to 9. At the first, he says that they've been enriched in Christ. Enriched in Christ. Look at verse 5. He says, I give thanks that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the repetition of that word all there, right? They've been enriched in every way, all speech, all knowledge. They're not lacking in any gift, any spiritual gift. This is a church that God has been tremendously gracious to. He has really blessed them. And it's important that Paul says this up front in the letter, because as we'll read on, we'll, we might be tempted to think that eloquent speech or knowledge or spiritual gifts are actually bad things. But Paul wants us to be clear right up front. They're good things. They're evidence of the grace of God at work in someone's life. They are things to, to give thanks for. The problem in this church is not the presence of God's gifts. It is the way that they're using them. Because you can be enriched in all speech and all knowledge and you can possess every spiritual gift, but you can still be a deeply unspiritual Christian because of your character is so flawed. The problem is not the gifts or the knowledge or the, or, or the speech. The problem is the heart, the heart that uses them. In his grace, God has enriched us with everything we need as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. Even in a sinful, messed up church like Corinth, God in his grace gives his people all they need. And that brings us to the second uh, blessing in verse 8. We are safe in Christ. We are safe in Christ. And verse 8 says that he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that is a wonderful statement of assurance, isn't it? Here God promises that he will sustain you, Christian, trusting in Jesus to the very end of your life. Yes, you may be sinful. Yes, your church may have problems. But God will ensure that in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's talking about the judgment day, God's people will be guiltless. They'll be saved. They'll be safe from the wrath of God. And God in his grace enriches his church with all that they need so that they will be saved to the end. They will persevere to the end. Well, I wonder if you this morning are sure that you will be saved on the judgment day. There are a lot of Christians that I know that are not sure. I remember some years back, uh, there was a girl that came 
over to chat to me in church after service. She was in tears because no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't fix the sin in her life. In a moment of honest confession during the conversation, she shared, I'm not really even sure whether God will let me into heaven. And it's true, isn't it? As we, as we look inside, all we see is the sin in our life and we'll be driven to, to despair. We can only find assurance as we lift our eyes up and, and see Jesus and look to the cross and see what God has already done. To know that he's already paid for our sins in full on the cross. Jesus has already lived the perfect life that we have not. He has died the death that we deserve. He has risen again to give us eternal life. God, in his grace, has given us all we need that we can be guiltless and forgiven and cleansed and assured that we will be safe on the judgment day and he will keep us trusting in Jesus to the end as we look to Jesus and his finished work 100% absolutely assured of our salvation. Well, the third thing Paul thanks God for, for his grace among the Corinthians is the fellowship that we share in Christ. Look at verse 9. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and here really is the ground of our assurance. It's the faithfulness of God. See, unlike us, God never gives up. God finishes what he begins. And if God in his grace has called us to Jesus and brought us into the fellowship of his Son, well, then he will bring us into his presence at the end. Here the, the focus is on the present state. Fellowship with his Son. See, as, as people who share together in the grace of God, we are united. We have fellowship in Christ. I think sometimes when we talk about fellowship, we... Uh, we're talking about what happens after the service, isn't it? Say church, well, that's corporate worship. And makan, well, that's fellowship. And it shows that we're rather confused in our thinking about these things. Because if there's no deeper basis to it than makan, uh, well, that's just friendship, isn't it? It's not really fellowship. Fellowship is about sharing together in the grace of Christ. It's about recognizing that the cross of Christ has united us not only to Jesus, but uh, as forgiven sinners to one another. Saints in his family. The, the gospel brings us this deep bond of fellowship with one another and it's created by the gospel and it's expressed in the church gathering, not so much by the food. And so it's no wonder Paul opens his letter in this thanksgiving to God. God has given us grace. Past, present, future. Grace in the past, at the cross. He's brought fellowship in the present, and he's assured our salvation in the future. And that is the gospel perspective that we need to bring to bear as we look at problem-filled churches. See, instead of focusing on the problems in the church, we need to focus again on Christ and all that he has graciously given us individually and together in him. And so, as I was preparing this, I, I thought it's, it's, it's helpful at this point maybe to just stop and, and reflect. Think about the gospel. Give thanks 
for the ways you see the grace of God at work in, in yourself, in the church, in those around you. Uh, I wonder, want you to notice something uh, in these opening verses, 1 to 10. And that is in every single verse, Jesus Christ is explicitly mentioned. Every verse, you'll find Jesus Christ there. That's no accident, is it? Paul wants us to focus on Christ, focus on the gospel. It is Christ and the gospel that will help us to face our problems. If I recognize everything I have is a gift of God, I'm never going to boast about my achievements or gifts. If I recognize the gospel has brought me into fellowship with Christ, then I'm not going to divide into factions. If I recognize that God calls, God enriches, God sustains, God is faithful, then instead of criticism and judgmentalism towards fellow believers, I'll give thanks to God for their faith and fellowship, just like Paul does here. Brothers and sisters, we must focus on Christ, for we've been given everything by grace. Well, having shaped the whole tone of the letter then with thanksgiving, Paul now turns to the issue that will dominate the rest of chapters 1 to 4, and that is divisions. We're now at point 3. Focus on Christ. Don't be divided. Focus on Christ. Don't be divided. Notice the sharp shift in tone now as we come to verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now notice the kind of unity Paul is after here. He's not just after a superficial unity where everyone uh, uh, holds hands and uh, tries to get along despite... Uh, the deep differences, just pretending everything's okay when actually you're deeply hurt or there's uh, you know, unresolved uh, tension between each other. I mean, that's, that's sometimes the kind of superficial unity that some churches and, and indeed the ecumenical movement seeks. Paul wants us to have a deeper unity. He wants to, us to be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. In other words, to agree on the word of God and how it applies to life, and then live that out in how we treat one another. Now, Paul makes this appeal uh, to, to not be divided in the light of the reports he's heard of the church. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul. Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Kephas, or I follow Christ. Paul finds it scandalous that there might be quarrels, factions in a church. It's as if the Corinthians are saying, well, you follow Archdeacon Stephen so well. I follow Bishop Stephen Aberau. Next person, well, you, you think that's something. Well, well, I follow John Carson. And the next says, yeah, well, that's great. I follow John Piper. Beat that. And then there are the super holy ones in the church. And I think they say, well, you think Stephen So and Stephen Aberau and Don Carson Piper, they're all good. Well, I follow Jesus Christ. Ha ha. And, and you see what they're doing. They're boasting about the wisdom and power of their particular favorite preacher and then looking down on the rest. But churches do that, don't they? One person says, oh, I like this pastor. He's older. 
he understands our traditions. His sermons are short. Another says, well, I like this pastor. He's pastoral. He's steered our church in the right direction. Another says, well, I like this pastor. He's young and passionate. He's a spirit-filled preacher and so on. And before we know it, our unity is gone. We're forming factions to champion the cause of our favourite pastor to make the church the way that we want it to be. We puff ourselves up thinking we're the loyal ones because we're on the right side. And the problem is that beneath all that is pride and arrogance so rooted in our hearts that we're right, that we're most important, that our way is best. It's so ugly. It's a denial of the gospel of grace. And so Paul appeals to us with, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with all of his authority, agree, literally speak the same, be united in gospel truth, focus on Christ and the cross, not on preferences, not on factions. Because if we would agree on the gospel and live it out, our pride would be humbled and our divisions would disappear. Well, instead, the Corinthians' boasting is destroying the unity of the congregation and Paul is indignant. That means he's very angry, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? The answer expected each time, of course, is no. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptised in the name of Paul? No. No, no, no. It was Christ who united them. It was Christ who was crucified for them. It was Christ's name that they were baptised into. They were Christians because of Christ, not because of Paul, not because of their favourite preacher. Their focus should have been on him and their, the fellowship that they share in him. They should have been using their gifts to build up one another in him instead of boasting about themselves as they sought their own model or shape for the church. See, despite all their pride and all their gifts, these divisions were actually a terrible condemnation on the church. They showed that the church was not spiritual at all for all they boasted. They were actually worldly. It's worth reflecting. Could the same be said of us? We need to check our hearts. Whose glory are we really seeking? Jesus' glory or our own? Whose agenda are we really seeking? Jesus' agenda or our own? Well, Paul holds himself up as an example to correct their thinking. Verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul was not seeking to start a, a Paul group that was somehow better or more impressive than all his co-workers in the gospel. Paul wasn't the least concerned with who he did or did not baptise. He couldn't even remember who he baptised. Because for Paul, engaging in ministry was not about self-promotion. It wasn't to advance his spiritual CV. It wasn't to get praise from other Christians by having more people belong to his party and more influence and more power. There was only one thing that mattered to Paul. 
the one thing that should matter to every genuine Christian. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that there in verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's focus was not on how many followers he had. Paul's focus was not on being wise and impressive. His focus was not on being influential and getting his way. Only someone puffed up with pride cares about those things. Paul's single-minded focus was preaching the cross of Christ. A message that would seem weak and foolish. A message that will be rejected by more people than, it, than accepted. But that's where Paul's focus was. The cross. And so I wonder as we reflect on our own uh, uh, difficulties, whatever problems that we face as a church, do we need to look again at the cross? What difference would the cross make to how we approach these things? Perhaps also we need to reevaluate our definition of what a faithful Bible teacher is in the light of all this. And being a faithful minister of Christ, it's not about being the most funny or entertaining speaker. It's not about walking around the stage telling stories that captivate people. It's not about having the most clever sermon outline with three P's or three S's. It's certainly not about having a big church with so many followers and a large ministry budget, a million likes on Facebook. And it's certainly not about dressing up in colourful robes and accumulating titles and positions. That's not what makes someone a good minister of Christ. Such a focus on greatness, success, eloquence, it's not spiritual. It's worldly and it undermines everything that the cross of Christ stands for. Our focus should always be on the crucified Christ because only the cross can unite a church. Worldly pride, boasting, will only ever divide it. Do you see, in the end, the biggest problem in Corinth was not the divisions in the church. It was actually their worldliness. It was their failure to look at the world through the lens of the cross. We'll see more of that next week. But for now, let's conclude as we think, how do you deal with problems in the church. And we've seen today that whatever problems we're facing, whether divisions, factions, moral, theological, anything else, we need to refocus again on Christ and his cross. Because in the end, every issue of behavior is first an issue of theology. Behind, behind every moral failure is a failure first to understand and apply the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so if we're to face the problems in our church, we need to resolve to gaze again at the Lord Jesus Christ, to come again and look at the cross, see our identity. He's called us to be holy saints. See what he's done for us. He's graciously given all that we need to be guiltless and stand before him on judgment day. 
And let's not let petty rivalries or personal preferences or proud comparisons or anything else divide the church. I pray that above everything else, we may commit ourselves to preaching nothing but the cross of Christ, that Christ and his gospel will become the air that we breathe, and it will produce in us such profound gospel humility that we are so united in loving fellowship that we never drift into vain discussions about who's right, who's the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. Jesus deserves the glory. He is the one we proclaim. And whether our ministry is a success or a failure, whether we're weak or strong, whether we're right or wrong, we look to him, our Lord, who's graciously given us everything that we need to be saved and will safely bring us home to our heavenly home in his presence, guiltless, on that final day. Focus on Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you call even selfish and sinful people like us to be saints in your church. We thank you for the abundant grace that you have poured upon us. Thank you that you've saved us and united us and assured us of our future with you. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for the times we've been proud, times we've divided your church, we've formed factions, we've been suspicious of one another. Lord, we pray that the gospel would work in our hearts, that we would gaze again at the cross, that through the lens of the cross, our view of the church and of the world would be radically transformed. Lord, we know we need your help. We know we need your spirit. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.